Do you ever have one of those days, those weeks, those months, maybe one of those years or years where you think, what is going on? What are you doing, God? Where are you, God? Why is all of this happening in my life? Why is my life this way? Why are all these things happening to me? Well, I'm sure you've had one of those days and weeks, months, maybe even a year or years. And I had one of those days last week. I was making coffee on Monday morning and, and all that was going on in my life just kind of washed over me like, like a wave. It, it kind of knocked me down on the inside. It kind of knocked the breath out of my spirit, if I can say that. I mean, right there at the kitchen sink as I was rinsing the used espresso out of the portafilter of my espresso machine, I was just hit with all that's going on in my life and in my heart and in my mind. And on top of that, as if that wasn't enough, my sin was there. I was frustrated about some things happening in my life. I was angry. I was mad. And I hated that I was getting angry and frustrated and mad about some of these things that were happening. And I knew that God was behind it all. I knew that God was orchestrating these things in my life. I even knew that God wasn't being vindictive in his orchestration of the events in my life. So I wasn't mad at him. I was mad that I was mad about some of the things happening in my life. So I wasn't mad at God at all. But I knew he was behind it all. So I just said out loud at the kitchen sink to God, you are being relentless, God. You really are committed to making me like Jesus, aren't you? You just won't stop. I can't get a break. I know you love me, and you're using these circumstances to make me trust in you and conform me more to the image of your son, but I wish you'd lay off a little. I really said that to God, to the God of the universe. I told him, I wish you'd lay off a little. Listen, I just keep it real with him. I don't know about what you do, but he already knows what's going on in my heart and in my mind, so I just spill the beans in my prayers. I've got nothing to hide. He already knows. I don't know if you talk to God that way, but it helps me process things. I think God can handle it. So I just told God that I needed a break, that I needed some relief, and I especially needed some relief because I was getting angry. So I closed my prayer by saying, Father, I just wish there was a sanctification pill that I could take and get this over with. I mean, haven't you ever wanted that? I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was a, a sanctification pill that you could take in the morning and then slowly throughout the day you would be slowly conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that be awesome? Sanctification pills. I'd be a junkie if it were true. I'd be strung out. Because I'm a sinner, and I sin a lot, and I need help. But wouldn't be, it be great if God said, just take two sanctification pills and call me in the morning? It would be great. But that's not how Christianity works. That's not how discipleship works. That's not how sanctification 
works. Unfortunately, if we can say that, unfortunately, the process of so sanctification, the slow, 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 slow process of sanctification, the slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus, unfortunately, it is painful. It hurts. There's discomfort. There's irritation. There are aches and pains. There's tenderness in some spots. In sanctification, all of your spiritual nerve endings are on fire. In sanctification, God turns the lights on and reveals all of the idols in your heart. In sanctification, God reveals all the things that you cling to, all the idols that you cling to in order to find satisfaction. And that's what I experienced last Monday morning. Pain, hurt, discomfort, irritation, ache, and I hadn't even got to drink my coffee yet. See, sometimes God doesn't wait until you've had a cup of coffee Sometimes he starts heart surgery when you're half awake. God often doesn't wait until you've had coffee to start arresting your heart and exposing your idols. You see, that's how much he loves you. He gets busy when it's time to get busy, even if you haven't had your coffee yet. So there I was. No coffee in my system yet, and it was pain, hurt, discomfort, irritation, and ache in my heart, and I knew that God was behind it all. I knew that he was pressing on the bruises. I knew that he was putting pressure on me, and all I wanted was relief. All I wanted in that moment was relief. All I Wanted then, all I have ever wanted in these times is relief from the discomfort, relief from the pain. I'm such a baby, Grace. Your pastor is a wimp when it comes to sanctification. I'd rather take two pills and numb the pain. I'd rather take two sanctification pills and find relief than deal with my issues and deal with my sinful heart. And so what does God say to us in moments like this? What does my heavenly father say to me? Maybe it's something like this. Son, I love you too much to give you the easy way out. I love you too much to leave you the way that you are. I want to change you. I want to transform you. I want to expose your heart, expose your idols, expose your weakness. I want to make you like my son, Jesus. P.S. It's going to hurt. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to discipleship. And this is the reason we're rewinding a little in 1 Peter today. We're going back to verses 6 and 7 to hang out because I need this. The whole reason we're back in these verses today, rewinding a little, is because I'm selfish. I'm doing this for me today. I'm sorry, Grace. This sermon is for me. I hope you get something out of it. But I'm just preaching to myself right now. I knew Monday morning that I needed to get recalibrated by the gospel, so that's why we are rewinding a little, because I knew that I needed this. 
I knew that I needed to work on a sermon all week long that I could preach to myself all week long as I was preparing it. I knew that I needed to work on a sermon that I would preach to myself three times today in three services. In fact, I preached it last night in preparation to myself, reading through it. I preached it this morning already to myself. So by the time this day ends, I will have preached through this sermon five times out loud. Why? Because I need it. I'm slow to learn. I've got deaf ears. That's how bad I need this sermon. So here's our big idea today, and I stole it from Paul Tripp. So don't think I'm this clever. The first time I heard him say this, it has stuck with me. It's rolled around in my head at different times, and I need to hear it again this morning, and I think maybe you need to hear it too. Here's what Paul Tripp says. God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. What Paul Tripp means is that God wants to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and so for that to happen, he will take you to some dark places. He will take you through some trials through some fires, through some painful situations and relationships. And the reason that he does that is because you and I cannot produce this Christ-likeness on our own. It is only as we go through the fire, go through the pain, go through the trials, go through the sufferings, it is only then that we become like Jesus. There is no sanctification pill to take Grace, I'm sorry. And this is exactly what Peter's audience desperately needed to hear because they were in a place that they did not choose to go to. But God chose this place for them in order to make them more like Jesus. So look at verses six through seven of 1 Peter chapter one and hear the word of the God who will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, is, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you remember from our introduction to 1 Peter, suffering is a major theme in this book. And Peter addresses the suffering that his readers are experiencing very early in his letter. He only gets six verses into the letter before he addresses what is happening in their lives. He only gets six verses into this letter before he addresses what is occupying their hearts and minds. He only gets six verses into this letter before he addresses what is keeping them up at night. That's genius, Peter. But Peter's pastoral care and wisdom shine even brighter because what does Peter talk about before he mentions their trials and sufferings? What does Peter talk about? For five verses, Peter roots his audience in the sovereignty of the triune God. 
the sovereignty of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Peter spends five verses rooting his audience in God's sovereign work of saving sinners. Peter spends five verses rooting his audience in the truth of the gospel, all before he ever mentions their pain, their struggles, their trials, their sorrows, their suffering, the thing that's keeping them up at night. Look at verses one through five. Let, let's, let's walk back through this for a moment so you can see what Peter's doing here. It's genius, and yet it's pastoral and caring at the same time. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in verse one, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is reminding his readers that they are God's chosen ones. They are his elect exiles. That they have been scattered all over Asia Minor because of God's sovereignty. They are where they are because God put them there. They are where they are in their lives because God has put them there. And then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you remember from our sermon a few weeks ago, foreknowledge has the idea of God choosing his elect people in eternity past, not based on God knowing that these people would choose him one day, but based on God's free, sovereign choice. And God's free, sovereign choice was based on his love for his elect people. So Peter is telling his readers that God the Father set his love and affection and devotion on them in eternity past. He chose them because he loved them. And he loved them because he chose them. And then Peter says they are in the sanctification of the Spirit. Peter is telling his audience that the Holy Spirit sanctified them, meaning the Holy Spirit set them apart from the world and they now belong to Jesus. And then he says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is telling them that Jesus' obedience to the law of God, his perfect life where he never sinned, where he fully obeyed the the law of God, that's what has saved them. And it is Jesus' spilling of his blood that saves them. Scholars refer to this as the active and passive obedience of Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Go back and listen to the sermon of why I'm explaining it this way because I think Peter is saying that it's through the obedience of Jesus Christ and through or because of the the sprinkling of his blood that they are saved. So if you want to know more about that, Google active and passive obedience of Christ or go back and listen to that sermon. And then Peter exclaims this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter wants his readers to know that God is the one who has mercifully saved them. He is the one. God is the one who has caused them to be born again to a living hope. And it is God 
who is guarding them and keeping them until the final day. In fact, it's God who is preserving them through their present trials, through their present pain, through their present suffering. So Peter reminds them in verses 1 through 5 of all that God has done for them. He reminds them of God and all that God has done for them before he ever addresses their trials and their suffering. Before he ever mentions the pain that's in their heart. Before he ever addresses what's happening that keeps them up at night. They wake up in the middle of the night and boom, it's there. And you're stressed and you can't go back to sleep. Before he ever addresses What's happening in their life that causes them to like, I can't even eat. I don't even want to eat. Before he even goes there, what does he do? He talks about the triune God. Because isn't that what you want when you go through some trial? When you get the news of cancer? When you lose a loved one? When you lose a job? When there's relational strife? Don't you want, don't you need a solid understanding of the sovereignty of God in those times. And yet so many pastors try to be hip. So many pastors try to be cool. So many pastors try to attract crowds by offering cheap advice that people could get from Oprah or Dr. Phil. Seven ways to be a better husband. Four ways to raise godly kids. Five steps to better communication. Listen, when you're on the hospital bed, you don't care about five steps to better communication. When you lose a loved one to a car wreck or some disease, you don't care about four ways to raise godly kids. What you want, what you need in that moment is God, a big God, a sovereign God who is in control of every molecule in the galaxy. What you need in that moment is God. Knowledge of God, not knowledge of how to be a better neighbor. In that moment, you don't want a pastor to come to you in the hospital and take you by the hand and say, let me give you seven steps to be a better hospital patient. No, you don't want that. You want a pastor, an elder, a deacon, some other Christian to come alongside and comfort you, hold your hand and say, God loves you. He's in control. Nothing has slipped past him. Nothing has flown under his radar. You can trust him. You can cling to his promises He is sovereign. He is in control. Everything is serving his purpose. Everything is working out to bring good to you, good to your family, and glory to his name. Sin will not have the last word. Cancer will not have the last word. The drunk driver will not have the last word. The doctor will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word. That's what you want. That's what you need. Not some practical how-to advice. You need God. You need to be reminded of God in those moments. And that's what Peter does in the first five verses before he ever addresses the suffering that his audience is going through. Peter knows that they need to know that God is in control. That nothing has slipped past him. Nothing has flown under his radar. They need to know even that God has ordained their suffering. They need to know that God has ordained their suffering. As R.C. Sproul says, the comfort we receive from the word of God 
is that God is involved with our sufferings even to the extent that he ordains them. But the purpose of that ordination is always good and righteous. People attempt to avoid that truth by saying that God does not ordain such things but merely permits them. However, whatever God permits, he must choose to permit. And what he chooses to permit, he thereby ordains. That should not discourage us, but encourage us. So God not only permits, but he even ordains our suffering. And he does it ultimately to bring glory to his name. But he also does it because he knows that we would never choose it. And therefore, we would never be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Remember, God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And this is precisely why Peter says in verse 7, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Their trials are necessary because they cannot produce Christ-likeness on their own. God has to take us where we would never intend to go in order to produce in us what we could never produce or achieve on our own. So how does Peter describe the place that none of us ever choose to go? In fact, how does Peter describe discipleship? Basic life in a fallen, broken world. He uses these four words. Grieved, trials, tested, fire. Grieves, trial, tested, fire. Those words certainly aren't words that we would use to describe discipleship, is it? Evangelism and discipleship, according to Peter, might look like this. Hey, let me tell you about following Jesus as a disciple. Here's what it's like. You will be grieved by all kinds of trials. You'll suffer and be hated for following Jesus. You'll be tested like gold in the fire. You'll be purified. God will turn up the heat on your life. He'll throw you into the furnace, into the fire. Want to follow Jesus? Peter may have denied Jesus three times, but he doesn't deny the reality of what we will suffer in this life. Peter knows that we will suffer for being Christians. We will be hated by this world. And Peter also knows that because we live in a fallen, broken world, we will suffer things like loss, death of a loved one, sickness, tragedy, etc. He doesn't deny the reality of the storms of life. Peter doesn't have his head in the clouds. If he does, he has his head in stormy clouds because he is aware of the storms of life. What he does do is give us a ballast to sustain us in the midst of the storms of life. He gives us a ballast, an anchor, something that will sustain us in the midst of the storms of life. And that ballast is the sovereignty of God over our salvation and the sovereignty of God over our suffering. So we can rejoice in this, as he says in verse 6. We can rejoice in a person in Jesus, we can rejoice in the triune God even when we undergo severe suffering because we know that God is sovereign not only over our salvation, he is also sovereign over our suffering. And we rejoice in Jesus 
because we know our sufferings will only last, as Peter says in verse 6, for a little while. There's coming a day when Jesus will restore this fallen, broken world and we will see him face to face. So when Peter says you suffer for a little while, he doesn't mean that our sufferings and trials and pain only last for a little while, like maybe a couple of days, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. And then we get the break. No, Peter knows the reality that some people suffer for a very long time in this life. Peter knows that some people suffer in this life for their entire life. But we know that we can still rejoice even if we suffer our entire life. Because when we compare our present sufferings with the glory that is to come, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, there really is no comparison. When we compare our present sufferings with eternity, then our sufferings are truly only for a little while. But right now we must. We must undergo suffering, which Peter describes with words such as grieved, trials, tested, and fire. And now the million dollar question is why? Why must we go through various multicolored trials? Why is it necessary? Why is it necessary, Peter, that we go through trials that grieve us, that we go through trials that test us, that we go through trials that feel like fire burning and consuming everything? Why? Well, Peter gives the answer in verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch the purpose clause there? So that. We go through trials because our faith must be tested. And suffering tests the genuineness of our faith. The Greek word has the idea to do with testing to, to prove the genuineness of something. That it's, it comes out of proof. So think of it this way. You ever get a new pair of jeans and you reach into your pocket and you find a little piece of paper that says tested by number 34 Whoever number 34 was in the factory kind of pulled on those jeans, checked the buttons and the zippers and the belt loops, and then they stuck that little piece of paper in the pocket or that sticker on the side that said tested and approved. That's the idea here. Testing, trials, suffering happen so that we come through the end and we are approved. We're real. We're genuine. Trials burn away our tendency to trust in ourselves. And God knows how much we trust in ourselves. God knows, doesn't he? We don't know so much how often we trust in ourselves, but God knows. And John Calvin knew this because he said this, deeply rooted in all of us is an arrogance which persuades us that we are righteous, truthful, wise, and holy. Deeply rooted in every single one of us is this arrogance which persuades us that we're righteous, truthful, wise, all-knowing, and holy. Trials come along and expose all the lies that we have believed about ourselves and all the self-righteousness that we cling to. Trials expose all the idols in our hearts that we cling to, and that's one of the reasons why God sends them. Our faith, Peter says, is like gold. 
It's more precious than gold, but he says it's like gold. It must pass through the fire. And why does gold go through the fire? To burn away the impurities. And why do we as believers have to go through fire, through trials, through suffering? Because it purifies, because it sanctifies us, because it burns away the impurities. It it burns away our tendency to trust in ourself. Now, you may be thinking, I'd rather take a sanctification pill for that, Pastor Benji. I would too. Tell me if you find them. I'll steal them from you. I'd rather take a sanctification pill for that. Or just let me read my Bible and let that transform me. How about that? Just let me read my Bible all the time and that can be the means through which I am transformed and changed. Forget trials, give me the Bible. Well, Bible reading is one means to transformation, but it's not the only means. There are several means of God's grace to transform us. But one of the ways that God transforms us is through the fires of trials and suffering. And that's why I say, and that's why Paul Tripp says, that God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Christian, there is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through Bible reading. Hear me out. There is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through Bible reading. There's a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only by prayer, by getting in your prayer closet and just praying, God make me holy, God make me holy. There's a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through fellowship with other believers and accountability and challenge and exhortation. There is a level of growth and godliness that can only be achieved through suffering. There's a level of Christ's likeness that can only be achieved through suffering. And none of us want to go to that place naturally. We never intend to go to that place. We don't make plans to go to this place. We avoid the place of suffering, the place of trials, the place of pain, the place of being tested, and the place of fire. Why? Because we'd rather take a sanctification pill. We don't naturally choose to suffer. We don't naturally choose trials. And we shouldn't just naturally choose them like, I just want to suffer, yeah. And we shouldn't because we're not sick in the head. I mean, if you're singing, bring on the trials, yeah, I love them. You need some kind of pill. (laughs) We should never intend to go to that place in this kind of masochistic, crazy way. But none of us ever intend to go to this place of pain and hurt. But we could never produce Christ-like character, or it would never be produced in us by God if we never went there. So God lovingly takes us by the hand and he leads us to the fire and he leads us through the fire. And in the end, as we make it through by his grace, as Peter says in verse seven, it will all resound to the glory of Jesus on the day when Jesus is revealed. Ultimately, the main reason we go through trials is that God would be glorified in our lives. So that on the day that Jesus is revealed, he would be glorified. So as we stand before Jesus and we remember, we think back, oh my goodness, how did I ever make it through that? Oh my goodness, that was awful. I felt like the the bottom of my life was falling out. I felt like the weight of the world was crashing and I could not hold it up anymore. How in the world did I make it through that? Oh yeah, 
It's because of you, Jesus. All glory to your name. How in the world did I make it through that situation? I mean, the sin of this world ruled the day then. The bottom fell out of my life. I could not hold the weight up anymore. I was cracking under pressure. How in the world did I make it through that? So, it's because of you, Jesus. All glory to you. So the ultimate reason that we go through trials, whatever you're going through right now, is so that on that day you would stand before Jesus and say, you're the reason I made it. All glory to you. But how easy is it to lose sight of that in the middle of suffering and pain? It's very easy, isn't it? It's very easy. Because in the middle of discomfort and pain and trial and suffering, we all want out. We all want relief. We all want a sanctification pill. Oh, how it would be great to have a sanctification pill that we could take, but that's not how God works because God's not a quitter like us. God doesn't bail on his commitments. He's not a quitter. When the going gets tough, it's God loving you, Christian. That's what trials and suffering are. Tangible, painful proof of his love. The love that he set upon his elect children in eternity past. The love that is orchestrating everything in our lives. Everything. And so here's an extended quote from Paul Tripp because I can't say it any better. He says this. So God in the grandeur and glory of his relentless love will boil you. Here's the principle. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And in Paul Tripp style, he says it one more time. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what that's called? Grace. Grace, grace, grace. God knows how sturdy our self-righteousness is, he says. He knows how reliant we are on our own strength and wisdom. He knows how attracted we are to the things of the world. He knows how easily satisfied we are thinking we're grace graduates when we're not. He knows how much we are able to shift the blame and make excuses, how much we are able to swindle ourselves. And so in grace... He will take us beyond our wisdom, beyond our strength, beyond our plan, beyond our righteousness to places we would not have ever chosen to go so that we do the thing that we desperately, that we desperately need to do. Reach out in hands of helplessness and hope and say, I need your grace. Because grace is only for the broken. Grace is only for the weak. Grace is only for the poor. Grace is only for the disease. Grace is only for sinners. And unless you're there, you don't desire grace. God wants you there. He wants you there. He wants you there. And those moments of desperation are not God forgetting the plan or God ignoring the plan or something in the way of the plan. Those moments of desperation are the plan. It's the plan. It is the plan. So brothers and sisters, we better quit naming those moments as signs of God's unfaithfulness and inattention 
Because if you're God's child, those moments are sure signs of his covenant love. That's not God moving away. That is a glorious, faithful, ever-present redeemer moving closer. We need to begin to teach and encourage one another with the theology of uncomfortable grace. Did you hear what I said? We need to teach and admonish and encourage and comfort one another with the theology of uncomfortable grace. Because this side of eternity, God's grace often comes to us in uncomfortable forms. Oh, I know because I'm like you. You want the grace of release. You want the grace of relief. And those come in little pieces. But ultimately, hear what I'm going to say. Release is coming. Relief is coming. What you actually need right now is refinement. That's what you need. That's what I need. And perhaps if there are moments in your life where you're crying out, where is the grace of God? And you're getting it. But it's not the grace of release. And it's not the grace of relief. It's the uncomfortable grace of refinement. You already are getting the grace that you're crying out for. You're getting it, end quote. So in the grandeur and glory of his relentless love, God will boil you, Grace. He will boil me. And so here's the principle again. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. So please don't name those moments of suffering and pain as God forgetting you or ignoring you. Those moments and times and seasons are sure signs of his covenant love. But if you're like me, I just want relief. I just want release. Last Monday morning, I was like, I'm not interested in refinement. I'm not. I love you, Lord. Don't strike me dead. But I'm not interested in refinement. I want relief. And I think God can handle that kind of prayer. At least he hasn't struck me down yet. I just keep it real with him. It's like, I'm just, I just need a break. It's just, you put the pressure on. It's like all these, these family situations, church situations, heart situations, everything going on in my life. It's just coming in, God, like zombies to attack me. And I just, I need a break. I need a relief. I need release. And God says, son, you're getting my grace. It's just the grace of refinement. I'm making you more like my son, Jesus. And it's not an easy process. It's painful, but the result will be you will be more like Jesus and my son will be glorified. So trust him, Grace. He's working overtime to make you like Jesus. He's putting in extra hours, if you will. And isn't that what we all want? Don't you want to be like Jesus? I want to be like Jesus because I'm tired of being like me. I'm tired of selfish, sinful me. I want to be like Jesus. I really do because I'm tired of me. Some of y'all are tired of me. I don't blame you. I'm tired of me. You're you're clapping because you're tired of me. I'll take that. I'm tired of me. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of my selfishness. And I just want to be like Jesus. And God says, that's great. I want you to be like my son too. So can I just read the Bible on the beach and be like you? I'll use that a little bit. Can I just pray in the closet and say, please, Jesus, make me like you. Make me more holy. I'll use a little bit of that. Can I just come together in the fellowship of the saints and they can encourage me and challenge me and exhort me to follow you? I'll use that a little bit. 
But I also have to take you somewhere you don't want to go, son. Because that is one of the means that I use to make you more like my son. I use pain. I use trial. I use fire. I use tests. I use suffering. Don't you just want to be like Jesus? I do. But it doesn't just come through reading the Bible. It just doesn't come through prayer. It just doesn't come through fellowship. God also uses suffering, trial, pain. So the process is not as simple as reading your Bible. Sometimes what we need is something to come alongside the Bible. Sometimes we need a good boiling. Sometimes we need a good boiling as we read the Bible. And that's a hard pill to swallow because we'd rather just read our Bibles to experience transformation. Sometimes we need a good boiling. I think, honestly, if God said, I'll, I'll, I'll forego the trials, and you can become more like Jesus, if you'll read Leviticus, we'd be like, where is it? It's back here in the sticky part of the Bible. Those pages still stick together. We'd be, I'll read Leviticus if you'll make me more like Jesus, as long as I don't have to go through the trial and the pain and the suffering. You betcha, I'll jump into the minor prophets. Absolutely. But, sometimes we need a good boiling. Sometimes we need the fire, and it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's the only pill to swallow because there is no sanctification pill to swallow. So God doesn't say to us, take two pills and call me in the morning. God says through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 14.2, he says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Take words with you. And return to the Lord. That's what you take. Take words, grace. Take his word with you. Take his promises with you. Take words with you today to comfort you and sustain you in the middle of the fire. Put these words in your pockets, in your mind and in your heart. Take these words with you today, grace, as you are taken by the hand of your father into the fire. Take these words with you. Romans 8, 28 to 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You're getting the grace that you want. It just may be the grace of refinement. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the brutal honesty of your word that you inspired Peter to write the truth, not to have his head in the clouds. He had his head in stormy clouds and he didn't deny the reality of pain and suffering of this fallen world. Because of Adam's sin, this world is broken, Father, but you are restoring it, you are redeeming it, and you will do that finally on that final day. Until then, God, may we be a church that reads our Bibles.
May we be a church that prays. May we be a church that is involved in fellowship where we exhort and challenge and encourage one another, God. But may we also be a church who by your grace make it through the trials and the pain and the suffering so that when we stand before Jesus, we will point to him and say, you're the reason why I made it through. May we be a church that is all about your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.